Hi, this is Peter Diamandis here with Dan Sullivan. Welcome to Exponential Wisdom, the art and craft of human technology teamwork. Dan, good to be with you again. It's really a pleasure, and my mind has been spinning since we did the first podcast. We're getting a lot of interest from the strategic coach community about this one because I used to produce little reports, you know, written reports on some of the things I was saying, but we're actually taking advantage of something today, which is going to be the topic for our discussion, which is the connections that are now possible because of digital technologies and podcasts posted on iTunes on the internet is a really, really great example of what hyperconnectivity, which you talk about. So we're actually practicing what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and today we're going to be picking a major exponential theme and understanding what the implications are for our listeners. The theme that you and I kicked around talking about today is this hyperconnectedness. And let me talk about what's breaking news or global news right now that's going to change the world. I'll tee it up, and then I'd love your thoughts, what your first reaction of what this means for you and for everyone in Strategic Coach and the Abundance 360 community. So the numbers are the following. We're just across the 7 billion mark here on planet Earth. We're, I believe, going to peak somewhere around 9.5 billion. We can talk about those implications some other time. But in 2010, we had about 1.8 billion people connected online. By 2020, the low estimate is that we're going to be going from 1.8 billion to 5 billion. But something has recently happened that is going to change that low estimate and move it up. It's the fact that Mark Zuckerberg has said he wants to connect the other half of the world. And he's been making investments in drone companies and satellite architectures with the notion of can we connect individuals, but not to be outdone, of course, Google has Project Loon, where they're looking at putting high-altitude balloons in the stratosphere, thousands of them, that would provide communications to every single person on the planet. And of course, not to be outdone, we have Paul Jacobs, the chairman of Qualcomm, and Richard Branson, the chairman of Virgin, and Greg Weiler, with a 643, I believe, satellite constellation called One World that is looking to provide connectivity. And then recently, Elon Musk committed $10 billion with a billion dollars of additional backing from Google to put up what will be probably a thousand satellite constellations. So we have four separate approaches to not connecting 5 billion, but connecting 7 billion people. And not just with a 9,600 baud modem like you and I came online, but with a megabit connection. And so all of a sudden, what happens when 5 billion new consumers, 5 billion new people who've never bought anything, never searched anything, never uploaded anything, come online, not in 30 years, but like the next five? I mean, so what are your first thoughts about that, Dan? I mean, that's mind-boggling. There's a couple things that come to mind right away. One is there's a very famous Silicon Valley law, which is called Metcalfe's Law. And Metcalfe's law is that the economic value of a network is the number of connected users squared. It tells you why it's important to have more than that one person just has a telephone. It, it has no economic value until two people have a telephone because they talk about things which are usually not predictable before they talk about them, and it leads to economic activities. So if you have 100 people, the economic value 
if they're all connected with each other, is 100 squared. And if it's 7.2 billion or 9.5 billion, then the economic value of the entire network, which in this case would cover the entire planet, is 9.5 billion squared. So this is an amazingly simple way of why all of your predictions of abundance are almost like a no-brainer. What most people don't realize as well, and it still boggles my mind, is these three to five billion new people coming online with a megabit connection aren't just coming online like, again, you and I did and many of listeners perhaps in the mid-90s here in North America. They're coming online with access to the world's information on Google, right? They're coming online with the ability to, if they want, crowdsource access to technology, crowdfund access to their startup, money for their startups, the ability to go to Amazon Web Services, AWS, and spin up a thousand core processors, or go to platforms like 3D Systems and cloud print their prototypes. So they're coming online with access to technologies that were really only available to the largest companies and governments 20 years ago, and now... 7 billion people have that. And so I think, and this is what you've talked about before, which is the level of productivity in the world is exploding. And I think also the implications are going to be the level of innovation in the world is going to explode. The number of new products and services and inventions. What does that mean? And Dan, what do you think the implications of that are going to be? Well, here's the interesting thing, because Peter, you travel the world on red eyes, I should mention here. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But you travel the world, so you're really seeing the impact on a global basis where most people just experience it locally. But the thing that really strikes me about this is that the greatest impact is going to be actually on the poorest part of the planet, not necessarily the most developed part. And the reason is that, you know, I went to Iceland once they went from the horse cart age into the airplane age. They never went through trains. They don't even have a word in the language in Iceland for, you know, a locomotive and uh, railroads. And the reason is because they just bypassed it. And I thought that that was really a interesting thing that I saw in the 1970s, 1960s and 1970s when I was there, that this is happening very, very quickly now in the what we call the developing world or the disadvantaged world, is that they're not going through all the intermediate steps that we went through to get used to the microchip and to get used to the self-empowering technologies that have appeared 50 years later after the microchip started getting developed, they're going right to the most advanced form of technology right off the bat. And my feeling is that they're going to see a tremendous growth rate that can't be matched by the developed countries. Yeah. And what goes along with that, you're absolutely right, is that the developed countries have such a set of institutions in place that don't want to change. They're very brittle while a lot of the developing world, Africa, as greenfield operations, you know, one of the X prizes we're working on right now is called the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. This is trying to bring the Star Trek Tricorder to life that our dear departed friend Spock used to use and Dr. McCoy. And if your smartphone becomes your diagnostician, all of a sudden the 
FDA is going to regulate it, and that might mean it might never launch here in the United States, and it just gets launched in Africa. So you're going to start to see countries that have less structured laws in place becoming much more agile for entrepreneurs and exponential technologies, and that's going to set up a whole brand new dynamic. One of the things that we've talked about very, very briefly, and it's actually a form of connection, is drone delivery. My perception, because there's a a NIMBY effect in very developed countries, you know, NIMBY is an acronym that's not in my backyard. So local ordinances, municipal ordinances, state and national ordinances can stop a technology like drones. But in Africa, the drone is a tremendous breakthrough. It's a quantum leap in progress for the delivery of all kinds of products which they cannot do right now because they just have such a poor road system. There's people living in very, very inaccessible regions, which with drones accompanied by the smartphone to set up the order, they can actually get delivery of needed supplies in a very short period of time because of the drones. And so drones will develop, in my perception, the uses of drones will develop more exponentially in a place like Africa than they will in Europe or the United States. You're absolutely right. In fact, Singular University spins out about 15 companies per year. And one of the companies that came out a few years back, even before Amazon drone delivery came out, was a company called Matternet that realized that to put the road infrastructure into Africa would cost a trillion dollars, right? It would be impossible to build the roads. The roads suck. They're, they wash out, they're flooded, they're dirt roads and so forth. So can Africa, as you very correctly say, skip the roads and go to drone delivery the same way it skipped wireline and went to mobile phones. And it was a great situation. I was in a newsroom about early part of 2015 talking about Bold, and I was watching this story about how Amazon is desperately fighting with the FAA to get permission to do its testing on drone delivery. And as it's fighting to get FAA approval in China, Alibaba is doing drone delivery already, not trying to test it. They actually have a commercial service. (laughs) And so we're going to have an interesting situation where our rules and regulations may become prohibited as the rate of change is exploding so fast in other parts of the world because we live in a world of porous borders, right? Where you live all of a sudden is not a disadvantage when you've got megabit connections and cloud computing Mm -hmm. and all of these other capabilities. Yeah, and one of the things you can see already, and it's one of your charts, the evidence of abundance, Peter, is all the talk about inequality in the world. Well, in some countries, I mean, if you're talking within borders, the United States being one of them, there actually has been an inequality of incomes, especially with the last 20 years of the exponential growth of what we call human technology teamwork. Those who are good at human technology teamwork are really, really making tremendous incomes. And those who haven't clued in that this is their future are unemployed in many cases. But around the world, it's just the opposite. The the inequality between the rich and the poor on a global basis has been shrinking quite dramatically. And it's actually one of your charts. It's a fascinating situation where I think we've had forever a world of have and have nots. And the way I think about it right now is we're very rapidly going from a world of have and have nots to a world of haves and super haves, where 
we think about inequalities, but inequality is a very different thing. I mean, I would rather have a world in which everybody on the planet has access to food, water, energy, shelter, healthcare, learning. And okay, a few people have access to going to Mars. But I think we're heading towards a world where we're going to meet the basic needs of every man, woman, and child on the planet. If you look at the numbers, I was just at Davos giving a few keynotes there, and the numbers are such that in 2010, we had 70 countries in extreme poverty. This year, it's down to half of that 35 countries, and it's expected to have zero countries in extreme poverty in the next 20-year time frame. Amazing progress. And all of this is happening not because we have smarter politicians or we've been evolving bigger brains. All of this is a function of one thing technology. I'm actually a junkie for political news, so I make up for your absence, Peter, because I know you don't like (laughs) reading about that stuff except where it gets in your way. But I'm actually kind of fascinated with politics, not to be a participant in it, but to actually just observe because whatever you can say bad about politics, you have to understand that politics is actually an organizing structure which allows people to deal with inequality without violence. I mean, that's really the great breakthrough. And Steven Pinker has a lot of interesting insights about the fact that we've become an extremely nonviolent world by historical comparisons. But one of the things that I find very, very interesting about this is that the breakthrough in human progress really has to do with how human beings deal with strangers. Okay, so if you think about most of the world, you can only do business with friends and family. The entire almost Middle East world, much of the African world, a lot of the Asian world, a lot of the South American world, is that your trust level really doesn't extend very, very much on family members that you've lived with forever or friends that you've developed over a long period of time. The great breakthrough, and it's especially certain countries in Western Europe and almost the entire English-speaking world, anywhere where Britain put its footprint down, (laughs) is that you look at those countries and they have the highest trust levels, that and a few of the Scandinavian countries, highest trust levels among strangers. And when you think about it, you take that concept and you link it up with the whole notion of hyperconnectivity. Well, the hyperconnectivity is spreading because there's a high trust level with strangers. You wouldn't take advantage of any of these electronic technologies and just call somebody on the other side of the world if there was an extension of trust. There was a very famous 1940s, 1950s economist by the name of F.A. Hayek, and he was one of the real great thinkers about capitalism. And he said, you know, the biggest problem with capitalism is that it was named by its enemies. Capitalism isn't really about capital. Capital is just a byproduct. He says, capitalism is an ever-expanding system of increased cooperation among strangers. The more you can extend cooperation among strangers, the bigger and better the economy gets. The kinds of lives that people can live actually is a function of the general extension of cooperation among strangers. And the the hyperconnectivity is just taking that concept and taking it exponential. Dan, I completely agree. And in this world today, I mean, some of the technologies that are going to be piggybacking on top of this hyperconnectedness that we started talking about, 
is the whole virtual reality side of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the subjects I I was teaching about at Abundance 360 in January of this past year, January 2015, was what I'm seeing in the virtual reality, augmented reality world, right? We had Facebook buy Oculus Rift for $2 billion. We have folks like Philip Rosedale creating the next generation called High Fidelity. He was a creator of Second Life. We've got Sony, Google, Microsoft with their HoloLens and their Holo technology right now. And we're going to start to see a situation where it doesn't matter where you live and where you work. You can be connected and bring your thoughts, your personality, your passion, and connect with someone else around the planet. It's going to transform how cities are laid out. It's going to transform how maybe we don't have office buildings anymore. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I think, as you say, the interaction between human is going to become much more intimate and it's going to increase this explosion of productivity. Capital is just one means of measuring productivity. Anyway, uh, I'm fascinated by it. Let's talk about what hyperconnectivity has done to each of us, because we're talking about grand schemes here, and we're talking about global phenomenon. But where do you see yourself becoming adjusted to this whole notion of hyperconnectivity? Let's take your growth path as an individual and as an entrepreneur, and then really as a leading spokesperson for this entire phenomenon that we're talking about with exponential wisdom. Where are you seeing your use of this and you're getting used to it and feeling comfortable with it? Well, it's interesting because I find I have an expectation of constant connection. In other words, if I get on an airplane and doesn't have Wi-Fi, I'm pissed. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> how quickly we become <laughs> assuming that we're constantly connected in every spot at every microsecond of the day. One of the technologies I loved using that I introduced at Abundance 360 two years ago is the Beam robot put by Suitable Technologies. And I have three beams up in Seattle at Planetary Resources, about eight beams at Singular University and Silicon Valley, three beams here at XPRIZE, where I'm broadcasting this from. I have one right next to my table in my cafe. Yeah, and I have two in down in San Diego, and I have one at home. <laughs> I have two three-and-a-half-year-old boys, and the one at home is a little bit shorter, so it's their height. And when I'm on the road, I can beam in from Abu Dhabi or Hong Kong, or I'm going to be in Melbourne, Australia next mm-hmm. week. I'll beam in from there and have dinner with the kids. So it's the ability to connect with not just a phone call. I mean, the whole idea of global mail connected people, you know, the Pony Express, and then the idea of the telephone was shocking. Mm. But the ability to connect and actually be face-to-face and have conversations, and this is just, again, just the beginning of an intimate level of connection that's going to come to us when virtual worlds. Now, the downside of this of being constantly connected is the ability to put your personal brakes on. And you do this far better than I do. So how do you deal, Dan, with you're far more evolved in respecting free days and being unconnected. How do you balance the ability to be connected constantly with choosing not to be connected? You mentioned in our very first podcast that you have to pick your spots. You have to be very, very selective. 
If we're living in a, in a world of abundance, you can't get to it all. Because <laughs> if you have that attitude, then you have a scarcity mindset, you know. You know I mean, you're missing some of the abundance, you failure, you freak, you know. <laughs> you got to have a mindset that's okay with this in the sense that you're, I'll use the words, but that's not what I mean. You're going to miss a lot of it. I used to have this thing. I said, sometimes I think that people in regard to their lives, they're like they go swimming in the ocean, then they come out and somebody says, well, how was the water? And they said, well, it was really great, but I missed a lot of it. You know, that <laughs> one of the requirements in your mind that you have to have, that if you're living in the world of abundance and it involves 7 billion people, guess what? You're going to miss a lot of it. And you got to be okay with missing a lot of it. So my feeling, I just have an attitude that the most important thing that's happening in the world for me is what I'm doing right now. And the most important place to be in the world is where I am right now. And what that does mean, there's an incredible number of other people who are doing wonderful things. And depending on what my intentions are and what my goals are, that I'm going to meet them. The word's going to go out. I have a belief that our brains kind of operate like radio transmitters. And if we're on the same wavelength and we have similar goals and we're moving in the same direction, that we're kind of going to meet each other some way or another. In my case, I have Joe Polish's email, and I don't have to know the whole world. I just have to know Joe. That's how I met you, is through Joe. But the other thing is that I kind of restrict the number of things which makes up a good day for me. So I've just got a rule that each day I'm going to have three major accomplishments. And if I got finished with those at six o'clock at night, then that's the end of the day. If I got finished with them at 11 o'clock in the morning, then that's a good day. And what I sort of look at, Peter, is I work a six-day work week. I don't work on Saturdays, but I work on Sundays. And six times three, that's 18 important things in a week. Babs and I take a lot of free days, but I work 30 full weeks. So 30 times 18 is 540 really important things that I get done in a year. And I'm going to live a long time, and each year is going to be better. So I just kind of give some structures about what is really a great achievement for me and what constitutes real solid progress for me. And then... Who I am connected with has to do with the specific areas of progress. Like, for me, doing this podcast with you, Peter, is worth meeting 10,000 other people. <laughs> okay? It's going to take a couple hours, maybe two or three hours every month. And this, to me, is going to be worth any other 10,000 people I could meet in the world is just spending this time talking to you. So... You have to get very focused, very selective, but you have to tell yourself what you want. I respect that, and it's, you know, I learn something from you every time we talk, and that notion about being okay with missing 99.99999% of the ocean is important. I will add one thing, which is if the thing that you're doing and spending your time is truly in your passion area, if it's your massively transformative purpose, then that's okay. And I would add the notion that that's probably the most important thing that people should find, right, is what they love mm -hmm. to do more than anything else. And if they're doing that and doing it to the best they can, then that's a fulfilling and meaningful and significant life. And you got to be clear who you want to be a hero to because you can't be a hero to everybody. Yeah. So a long time ago, I just focused successful, talented, and ambitious entrepreneurs who 
they've completed stage one of their life and they want to now have a stage two that is exponentially bigger than everything they've done before. And I said, that's the only people I want to be a hero to. People say, you know, you should take this into the school system. I said, I don't want to be a hero to them. You should take this into government. I said, there's nobody there that I want to be a hero to. I only want to be a hero to a particular type of person. And that's very important too. It's got to have a multiplier to it too. I mean, if you're really good at what you do, you got to be rewarded in an exponential manner if you're creating exponential value. Absolutely. I know we like talking about a evidence of abundance chart at the end of each of our podcasts. And I'm rather than just one, I'm going to tee up two of them that I'm looking at, Dan. And it's the cost of, since we're talking about connecting the world, the cost of bandwidth over the last dozen years. And in this chart here, the dollars per gigabit per second, right? The amount of information you're transmitting per second. In 1999, it was about $1,245 per gigabit per second. In 2012, because that's where I have the data up to, it dropped from 1200 bucks to 23 bucks, right? So the cost is plummeting and effectively is heading towards zero. The other chart, besides the reducing cost of bandwidth, is the reducing cost of transistors. And in 1992, it was... 222 bucks for a million transistors. Now it's six cents for a million transistors. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing on the inequality issue, you know, people use income, take home pay as their indication of economic inequality. But in terms of buying power, the most important assessment of whether you're falling behind or getting ahead with your life actually is what can you buy for an hour of your work? Let's say you go back 20 years, what could you buy with an hour of your work? What can you buy with an hour of your work, too? And, and attach it to something like television sets. I grew up, actually, before the television age. I was a child. Uh, I was a radio guy. But I remember, you know, the first television you bought, my father, it would cost him a month of his income in the early 1950s to buy a television set. We had an Emerson. I remember the first set that we had was an Emerson. And you got your three channels, and because we lived in Ohio, we got the Canadian channel too. But the average person right now, the amount it would cost them a television today would be, at most, it would be kind of a day's wages to buy a television set. And some of them, I mean, if it's a year old or two years old, they'll give it to you for free. Even better than that, if you've got a smartphone or a laptop, you can get all of your programming effectively for free. Yeah. And the phones will be free because it'll make sense to all the communication networks. It'll be like Xerox. They'll give you the machine for free. They just want to make their money on the paper. Well, with a smartphone, they just want you to purchase things on your cell phone. Exactly. Yeah, because if you don't have a smartphone or a tablet, you can't buy anything. So people will give you the user terminal for free in the future. And we really are heading that way, right? Where we'll have 7 billion people with a megabit connection with a free device and just to sort of maybe close out with sort of the implications that I want people to realize is going from 2 billion people connected online to 7 billion people, 5 billion people coming online mm -hmm. who never bought anything before represents tens of trillions of dollars flowing into the global economy. Oh, yeah. And people don't talk about that increased global GDP that's going to be pumping up the world. It also means we're much more hyper-connected and I think 
that's going to lead to caring a lot more. People are going to understand what's true, what's not. I think it's going to be a more peaceful world. I think it's also going to mean that the rate of innovation is going to explode because the number of inventions not coming out of Silicon Valley, but coming out of Africa, India, Asia, parts of the world that were never the creative parts of the world. It's, again, we haven't seen 1% of the rate of change we're going to see over the next decade. So, Peter, you know, we've talked about hyperconnectivity, and you're predicting even what's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years. So when we come back for our third episode of Exponential Wisdom, I want to hit on the subject, well, are you going to live long enough to actually enjoy this stuff? Even if you live long, are you going to be healthy? And I want you to talk about the groundbreaking work that you're doing with Craig Venter and his team on longevity using the genomic mapping of each person's body so that everything they do can be custom designed medicine, custom designed fitness and exercise programs. It's one thing to talk about different technologies, but what I've noticed, there is one subject that every human being on the planet is interested in, and that is a longer, healthier life. Yeah, I love to. I think human longevity, and just to tease that, our next episode at HLI, a company that I co-founded with Craig Venter and Bob Hurry, our mission is to make 100 years old than you 60. Mm-hmm. How do you add 20 or 30 healthy years at a minimum onto everybody's life? So you've got the aesthetics the mobility and the cognition at 100 that you have at 60. And the tech is there. We're discovering and understanding what the source code of the human body is. If you're alive today, it's the best time ever to be alive. (laughs) So, you know, it's a fascinating time to be alive. And you've said this, that there isn't a better time to be alive. But I grew up in the 1940s, so I was born just before D-Day in the Second World War. People tell very, very fanciful stories about what it was like in the old days. People say, you know, the 50s, gee, that was a really safe, secure period of time. And I say to them, you obviously haven't visited there. (laughs) It was really, really boring, if you ask me. You know, I mean, it wasn't interesting at all. Things were very, very slow moving. And I said, You can have things moving too fast, but I said, I can kind of deal with that problem. But when things are moving too slow, that's the worst problem for me. So I'm living in my glory right now with the world that we're living right now. I just love this world. Yeah, we romanticize the past too much. Dan, a joy, a pleasure. I hope that everybody enjoyed this conversation as much as I did and looking forward to our next one on longevity. Yes, and if this is the first time you're listening to the series of Exponential Wisdom, you can sign up for the full series simply by going to iTunes and plugging in Exponential Wisdom, and you'll be on board with us. And this is only going to get more exciting because we're living in an exponential world, so Peter, the quality of our episodes has to go exponential. (laughs) You got it, pal. Take care. Bye.